Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. You know what my favorite text is? A waypoint in the Onyx Hunt app to a goblin turkey. The list on the Onyx Hunt app features for chasing turkeys is long, but knowing exact public and private boundaries and land ownership details will help you find more places to hunt, whether that's on public or private. I'll be toting the Hunt app through the spring woods in a few states this year, and I recommend you do the same if you want more turkeys on your table. Also, Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onyxmaps.com hunt this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. How they made a living, how they got by, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I can't imagine. I try not to complain about anything because they they had all the right in the world and I never heard him or my grandmother negative on anything. It's always mm. positive. Mm. You know? mm. Had a lot of respect for him. On this episode of the Bear Grease Podcast, I want to introduce you to my friend and mentor, James Lawrence. James is 72 years old, and he's a master whitetail hunter for the region he lives. James's life and hunting career was heavily influenced by one of the first deer he ever killed in 1962. It was a giant buck, and previous to him killing the buck, he'd found three years of matching sheds. The story has many layers and some significant twists and turns. James's life has been a significant inspiration to me and it has impacted me on many levels. I want to explore how and why some relationships deeply impact our lives. You're going to enjoy a great whitetail story. You're going to learn how to still hunt, but I'm also going to explore how relationships help form our own identity. But before we start, I want to ask you a question. Who are the influential people in your life and why? My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is the Bear Grease Podcast, where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant, search for insight in unlikely places, and where we'll tell the story of Americans who live their lives close to the land. James Lawrence's family homesteaded in a small rural community in the Washita Mountains of western Arkansas in the mid-1800s. They weren't wealthy people, but common people, typical of the demographic of those migrating into the Arkansas highlands. 
Most of these newcomers came by the way of the Appalachians and were of Scotch-Irish descent. In the mid-1800s, up to 50% of the migrants that were coming into the Ozarks came from Middle Tennessee. But James's family came directly out of Kentucky into the Washitaws, which is a range of mountains south of the Ozarks. To this day, the culture of all these regions are almost mirror reflections of each other. All the history of James's family is held simply in what can be remembered by those still alive. If they'd been wealthy or famous, perhaps some documentable history would have deemed their story worthy of remembrance. Today, weathered headstones of granite with the name Lawrence are their only literary hat tip. This is it right here. That's it. That's my folks and that's my grandparents. Um, What was your what was your grandmother's name? Edna. Edna Goldie. I feel like in order to understand the context of this story, we got to go way back. We're in a cemetery in western Arkansas, the Lawrence Family Cemetery. What do you know about your family history back in here? Well, the Lawrence has come here from the east, Kentucky. My dad was James Lawrence. My granddad was James Dan Lawrence. Uh, and I'm James Edward Lawrence. Now, your grandma was a deer hunter, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, now, was that unusual for a woman to be a pretty serious deer hunter or a real serious deer hunter like she was? Was that unusual or was that common? Well, a little of both. A couple of her, her sisters were serious hunters. Hmm. You know, and... Did they hunt because they loved it, or were they hunting for meat? No, it, it was strictly for meat. You told me that your grandmother taught you how to shock pouch a deer. Yeah, her and her brother, Raymond. Shock pouching is when you remove the lower leg bone from the four legs of a deer, leaving the dew claws. Then you crisscross the legs, tying them together, and effectively make backpack straps out of a deer so that you can carry the deer out of the woods on your back. I actually made a video of this that's on TheMeatEater.com called Shock Pouching that you can see the whole thing that James taught me how to do. Do you have any idea where that came from? No. Just that's how they carried deer out? Did they do it on just about every deer? That's the way they, when you'd find them, and when they'd come out with them, that's the way they would be. They'd have the legs they'd cut off of them, tied in a knot, and they'd carry them out physically. You know what's pretty interesting to think about? To, to think about the 1830s seems like so long ago. But if you think about it like this, you're 72. Mm-hmm. You knew people that were, your grandmother was born in 1909. So she would have, you know, her grandparents would have been people that would have been here in the 1830s. So you think about, like, your life was influenced by people whose lives were directly influenced by people that had no technology, no cars, no phones, like totally almost like primitive life. And so when you think about it like that, like, you're two steps away from... The 1820s. I mean, it's like uh, in in the scale of human history for how long we've been here, that's like a blip. 
I grew up in the same part of Arkansas as James, but I didn't meet him until he was 62 years old and I was around 30. His reputation preceded him and I was told he was one of the best mountain deer hunters around. I got his address, drove to his house, and knocked on his door, cold turkey. I introduced myself to a warm, humble, and rugged man who opened the door. I received immediate credibility because of the man who told me about him, a mutual friend of ours. James's response was predictable of the mountain people. If he's a friend of yours, then you're a friend of mine. I told him I was writing an article about deer hunting in the mountains of Arkansas. Our hunting culture has gradually moved to being dominated by deer feeders and sacks of corn. I'm not necessarily against feeding deer. I do it myself some, but it has undisputably degraded the level of knowledge about deer and deer hunting in the modern era. I wanted to talk to an expert who hunted deer in the mountains on public land. Something immediately told me I'd found one. His face was worn with deep wrinkles that had clearly greeted the sun daily for decades. I'd learned that he used to be a smoker, but had quit for health reasons some years ago. In his early 30s, James was a game warden, but resigned after a series of incidents, one of which involved him ticketing a government official for a game violation. But he was then later told to rescind the citation in a backroom meeting with a supervisor. The injustice was too much for a man raised in the mountains who never heard of silver spoons or the advantages of political hierarchy. James made his living as a carpenter, stonemason, and cattle farmer. He once built an entire complex of buildings in the 1970s. It was a mountain retreat center, and the job called for 400 tons of native stonework. James spent years gathering the rocks by hand and doing the work. In my mind, James is representative of the mountain people. Hardworking, humble, independent, leery of outsiders, but quick to befriend you if friendship is offered. He doesn't seem to lose a grudge too quickly, but to his friends, he's deeply loyal and sacrificial. On that first meeting with James in 2010, I looked at a wall of whitetail deer racks. The horns were screwed to the sheetrock wall in his garage, and they were all cut from the skull plate in the same way. I'd learned that his uncle showed him how to cut the skull plates so they sit flat on the wall, displaying the rack at a very particular and natural angle. His uncle taught him to tan the hide and put it back on the skull plate. Bucks that had been off the hoof for 50 years still had their original hair. They ranged in size from basket rack bucks to mature top-notch whitetails for the region. One rack stood out from the rest and the yellowed horns looked old. The hair on the skull plate was faded. Surely this deer had a story. I walked to the rack and touched its rough burrs and I asked him about the deer. I was amazed at the story that he began to tell me. But before you hear the story directly from James, you've got to understand the context. In the 1950s and 60s, deer numbers in Arkansas were low. And for an even deeper look into the context, on December 18, 1907, President Teddy Roosevelt created the Washita National Forest. And prior to that, the region had been logged at a landscape level, meaning almost everything was cut. With the trees went the wildlife and most of the other big game including bears, but don't get me started on that. 
With the new management of the Forest Service, by the 1950s, the forests were recovering. But the primary method of deer hunting the low-density population was with dogs. Using the dogs was a traditional and effective method for rousing deer out of their lairs. But very few hunters at the time knew how to hunt deer on their natural patterns. So when you hear this story, I think you'll agree that it was an incredible feat, especially for a young boy. When I was with my uncle out here on weekends, when we lived in town at the time, spent all the weekends out here, uh, he'd give me a twenty-two rifle, and ammunition was cheap. And when I was out here, I was out wandering these fields, and all of it was family-owned. Right here where we're right, sitting. Right, right where we're sitting. The first sheds was probably 150 yards from where we're sitting. Mm. I crossed the Cossatot, headwaters of the Cossatot, and there they were just together, touching each other. Just laid right on top of each laid other. Laid on top of each other, and I couldn't, I couldn't pick them up and run over here and show them quick enough. You, you would have been, uh, you'd have been eleven years old. These first sheds you found right here were, would have been in like nineteen fifty nine, probably yeah. three years of sheds and then the buck. So fifty nine, sixty, sixty one, and sixty two, you killed the deer. Yeah. So you found this these sheds just right there. You pointed out to me a cedar tree. Yeah. That they were laying by. And that was during a time when there there weren't deer in these mountains during that time. James's family would go off to deer camp, but James rarely went. He'd stay home and wander around alone on his home place shooting squirrels and rabbits with his twenty-two. These early solo hunts would set a track for his future hunting. But it also brings up the question, why wasn't he included in these family outings? I was one of the only ones that was out thrashing through the woods and through the fields and the thickets for the rabbits, the squirrels. I was jumping deer, you know. I couldn't explain it to them because they, I was jumping deer all the time and they were going off dog hunting and they're occasionally killing deer and the family wasn't seeing it. They wasn't following me around and I would try to tell them what I seen and I know it's hard to believe they were off scattered out hunting and they're not seeing anything yeah they come in and i've got these stories well they wasn't interested in my stories <laughs> i mean it really yeah know? here's the here's the bigger question why weren't you hunting with them they i went with my granddad and sat on a stand freeze to death we'd build a little bitty fire for just stay warm and we was waiting on the dogs to run a deer by us why would it choose us when there's standers everywhere we would occasionally see deer but I could stay home and I could just walk down the fence rows and I could see deer. So you started really learning from a young age how to hunt these deer. Well, it was just from being out. So you saw him. I saw him. I saw him twice. So you came back and told your family, I saw a big buck. And I know I had excitement. I was excited all over. After James found the first set of sheds, the next fall, he actually saw the buck hard horn. He shared the sighting with his family, but you can guess the response that he got. A little kid claiming to have seen a giant buck, he was dismissed. You know, I mean, it's hard to visualize that thing when I was a kid seeing the buck of that. Yeah. Standing broadside, nothing between me and it. Me with a twenty-two. I could, I, 
I couldn't go any further. I had to come tell somebody, which was my uncle. And I don't know. I would have got excited if 11-year-old kids come up and told me what they'd just seen in excitement. Uh, it just didn't seem to matter. <laughs> they kind of dismissed you. Well, it just didn't seem that, to matter. It kind of hurt I, your feelings. It hurt my feelings, but <laughs> I had proof, you know. Yeah. That, so that second year, so you find these sheds, and just to give people context, that first year sheds, I think I scored it at, in the high 140s, 150s. I mean, so this is not a small deer, and especially for the late 1950s in the Washita Mountains. I mean, this is like a major deer. So you come back with the sheds. The second year, you, you, you're, you, how did you find the second set of sheds? Same way. Had my twenty two, and, and it was, was right over here. I was stumbling around. I was squirrel hunting up the road, and I was going up that dark. I call it dark hollow. Mm-hmm. There's a hollow where the road makes a sharp bend, and I'd go up that holler. Yeah, on rocks basically, where I could slip up and hear the squirrels barking, and and I was on my way back, coming around, and basically, uh, all but inside of where we're sitting right now. It's coming down. And the so road. you pick up the second year sheds of this buck. The third year. Tell me how you found those horns. Same way. I was out stumbling around. Where was where was that? They were separate. Uh, right. They were on up the head of Cossatot. The Cossatot is a fast-flowing, 89-mile-long river in western Arkansas that flows out of the southern Washita's. Its headwaters basically start on the Lawrence family homestead. The word Cossatot is a Native American word that roughly translates into skull crusher. It's known for its rapids further down the river. Hey, in the third set of sheds, I scored that deer, giving it the same spread credit as the actual deer, and that deer gross scored over 170 inches. Right. I mean, so this is in the, in the now we're into the early 1960s. And so, I mean, this is a, this is a gross 170 plus typical. And you have found third-year sheds. I, and I want to say something. Like, people in the Midwest today in farm country, they'll have history with deer. You know, they'll find two or three years of sheds of a buck. Down here, in the 1950s and 60s, that was unheard of. Exactly. It was now the fall of 1962. James was now 13 years old, and he'd collected three years of giant sheds of a buck almost within sight of his house. He'd been dismissed by many of the hunters and his family, but things were about to change. And so tell me, tell me about that day. Wow. <laughs> uh, a typical deer season day. I'd been roaming around, jumping deer. As was typical, James stayed home and hunted while his family went off to deer camp. He had a stand at a deer crossing that he'd often go and sit most of the day. By stand, he didn't mean a tree stand. It was a stump that he sat on. Family loaded up and was going. Mm. I was out of school that day. Uh, Family went over and they let me stay home because of I'd been telling them what I've seen. You know, they were off hunting and that was what I did. I went up and sat on that stand because it was basically a crossing for deer. And this was with my new thirty thirty Marlin. I sat to lunch time. And I was at the top of the hill eating lunch at our house where we lived, looking down on the field, and I seen a doe 
down in the field while I was taking a break. I hadn't seen anything. Yeah. At that time, it was a big deal to see a deer. Yeah. Had my sandwich. Walked back down the road. I got caught, and it was a, it was a local person. Asked me if I'd seen any dogs or picked up any dogs or heard any dogs or whatever. <laughs> Standing there talking to them, they were in a pickup, and I looked across the hood of the truck out in that field. While we were talking, I could visualize, and I could see horns mm. up above the sage grass. This is You're looking across the hood of this vehicle. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> While talking to him, I was looking at, for that doe. I didn't yeah. tell him about the doe. I didn't pass any information. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't say anything to them, but I kind of wanted them to go on, and they did. I went on around like I'd always do to get in that stand, sitting up there in that little gap. I get up there and sit down, and I started thinking about that deer. Did I really see? <laughs> I get up and slip down. I had a fence to cross to get in that field. I slipped down there. And a doe jumped up. Man, it got me excited. And the doe went out in the middle of the field. And I seen the movement. And here was, here was the shed buck. Mm. Just come up out of that sage grass and looked at me. He was in his bed. He stood up out of the grass. And he was standing up, raring up to get up when I shot the first time. And you hit him the first time? I hit him the first time. But You jacked another shell I in? I jacked another shell Iron in. sights. Marlin 30-30. 30-30. Hit him again. Disappeared. He went down. Down. <laughs> what did you feel like when you walked up to that buck? I, I don't know how to describe it. I still remember the excitement, but, you know, it, it was, I didn't know what to do. James sat and admired the shed buck for a while, but ended up going home to wait on the return of his family from deer hunting. Take into consideration that this was the biggest buck anybody in the family would have ever seen. And if James could forecast in the future, he'd see that it would likely be the biggest buck he'd ever kill in his life. You'd think he'd get a good response. And I, you know, we talked about it before. I didn't get the response. I was, you know, they walked up on it. The deer was laying there. They field dressed the deer and we drug it out. And, you know, I've got pictures of when I was a kid holding my dad's deer. There wasn't no picture taken. There wasn't no... So they didn't celebrate with you? There, there wasn't a celebration. My uncle took the horns, like I showed you different ones that he took. He cut the horns off and put the skin back around it and put it on a board. That was it. Hung it on the wall. And that would have been the biggest deer that any of these guys had ever seen. Oh, I, obviously. You know, my dad killed several deer, but they wasn't nothing. Because, James, you've been hunting right in here since 19... 19- or late 1950s. Yeah. So that's over 60 years. Yeah. And this is the biggest buck that you've killed to this day. Exactly. And you've probably killed over 100 whitetails oh, since yeah. then. Yeah. Well over that. Well probably. over 100. Yeah. Yeah. What I meant to say was that he's killed over 100 mature mountain bucks on public land without bait, most without trail cameras, and the majority of them from the ground while still hunting. James would become a master at hunting the mountains of Arkansas. He hunted out of tree stands, but he loved to still hunt. Whitetail Institute launched the food plot revolution in 1988 with a concentration on research and real-world testing of forage products specifically for whitetail deer. 
Whitetail Institute's research and development team of agronomy experts provide effective, personalized service. I've been using Imperial Whitetail Clover for a long time in a food plot back behind my house. In 2007, I killed the biggest buck of my life over an Imperial Whitetail Clover small quarter acre food plot. Imperial Whitetail Clover is the only clover scientifically developed through years of selective breeding. Clover Extreme Genetic Stability provides extreme cold tolerance, disease, and drought tolerance. It really does. Clover is coated with Whitetail Institute's Rain Bond, a polymer coating added for enhanced seedling survivability. They have an exclusive offer for Bear Grease listeners, 15% off Imperial Clover when you use the code BEAR at whitetailinstitute.com. That's whitetailinstitute.com and use code BEAR for 15% off. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The people at Sport Dog know that having a well-trained hunting dog is more than just having a reliable partner. It's a commitment to their safety and unlocking their full potential. The Sport Dog promise to customers is simple. Gear the way you design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Trust Sport Dog, where innovation meets passion, to elevate your hunting experience and strengthen the bond with your local companion. Using tracking equipment on my squirrel and coon dogs is extremely important to me to track my squirrel dogs and my one old coon dog that's not very good. Get 20% off your first purchase using the code BEARGREASE. Go to www.sportdog.com slash BEARGREASE to learn more. The old timers say that the turkeys start gobbling when the leaves are as big as squirrel's ears and the red buds start popping. And we're about there. And we are there in the south. The Onyx Hunt app is one of my most valuable tools in the spring woods. With tools like coniferous versus deciduous tree distribution layer, you can save time by locating edges or transition areas of mixing habitats from home. Find an area like this with water in close proximity, and more than likely, there will be a goblin turkey nearby. Knowing the exact boundaries of private ground ensures I stay on the right side of the fence, but can easily find public ground to go see if I can't strike a gobbler. If you do get one to sound off, using compass mode and waypoints will help you pinpoint his exact location, allowing you to move in and make the perfect setup to bring him right into your lap. Download the Onyx Hunt app today. You'll be glad you did. Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this spring. The buck, I, I scored it. This dude, <laughs> James, this is what I love about you, is that you never had that deer scored. You you never even cared what it scored. No. And then I think in 2010, I saw the deer and I said, hey, we ought to score that deer. Yeah. And you were like, yeah, let's see what it scored. And I scored that deer gross scored it right at 160 inches right the buck was starting to go downhill the prior year he gross scored 170 inches i can't express what an incredible feat this would be to kill a 
160 inch deer at any time by anybody, but even more so in 1962 by a 13 year old boy. I asked James how killing the buck affected the trajectory of his hunting. Two times before that, I went to the uh, dog camp, the deer deer season. For the, it was a camp house. It was a relative's old home place. House was still standing. That was the camp. My uh, granddad's brother, he was always off still hunting. Twice he invited me to go. My uncle invited me to go with him, and he started showing I me. Mean, we didn't, the amazing part of him, wasn't an oddball in the family. He just kind of done things different than mm-hmm. the rest of the boys did. They had hunting dogs, and he didn't have any. He didn't go to sit on the deer stand like the rest of them. Mm-hmm. He would go off a different direction. Mm-hmm. But the thing that really I tried all my life to do it, he started hunting when he took the first step off the road. And when he get inside the road, he didn't quit hunting. He, when he stepped back in the road is when he quit hunting. Hmm. When he stepped in the woods, he was hunting. Even in the, the first time we left across the road from the cabin or the house where the deer camp was at with all the barking dogs and the people and the excitement and stuff. And we started hunting the minute we stepped off the road across from the cabin. And he taught you how to track deer. And the man could track a deer, just go through the woods and find a track and could stay on it. And, and we're, Every th- time this I isn't went, like mud. This is like leaves. This is leaves. Leaves this and is, rock piles. Right. Right. And he's tracking deer. And he's tracking deer. And most of the time I had to step in the same tracks that he stepped as he slipped through. And it, you know, sometimes, Clay, we wouldn't go 30 yards, and I swear it was 30 minutes. Mm. And then other times we would travel a little bit faster. But I know the first time we went, we was almost back inside of the hunting party when we jumped the deer. Mm. And we'd been on them for a while, and he was... I don't know. It just amazed me. So I took two different times we did that, and I took what he he showed me. Well, he didn't really show me. I just picked up on what we were doing and the way he was doing it. And so there was something appealing to you about your uncle. What was his name? Raymond Ashcraft. Raymond Ashcraft. And the way, the way he hunted, and James to this day, that's the way you prefer to hunt. Oh, yeah. And you'd call it still hunting. That's all. That I mean, that's what they called it then, and that's all I know how to call it. Yeah. Was still hunting. Some people call it slip hunting, and I don't have the patience that I used to. But fifteen, twenty years ago, I'd spend a day and I wouldn't go nowhere. I mean, you know, I I had deer, I thought pinpointed in the area they was in, and it just amazed me how little travel I'd be doing. But you know, a few steps or a tree. Uh, and it's amazing how many deer will get up and start slipping out away from you that you pick up. Or, yeah. I got more specific with James about the details of the style of still hunting that he did. On a good November morning, when you were still hunting like you would have done all those years, what kind of area were you going to? Why would you be going to that area? And then what would you do when you got there? When I'd go into the woods... Unless something caught me, I had to be back out. If this was a day that was set aside for me to hunt, I didn't have to come back. I left that truck intentionally coming back at dark. When I leave the woods the year before, I know that I'd left deer in that area. 
So I didn't do any pre-scouting. I just okay. would go back into the area where I know that I left good bucks the year before. I'd already learned some trails, some saddles, some gaps. The areas on the mountain that I was finding more signs. So I would go into it. That way I didn't disturb anything. And I would hunt from the time I left the road. Mm-hmm. Going into the woods or the mountain, basically. And... Our mountains run east and west. Mm-hmm. Most of our winds coming out of the south, so I always calculated I could, I, for I, that. I could calculate which direction I wanted to hunt on the mountains, and uh, I think that helped more than anything than scouting because I, the scouting, I'd always disturb deer. These deer hadn't been disturbed. This area mm. that I hunt, I know there's nobody been in there. Leaving so that's front. a big key right there is you intentionally. We're going in on undisturbed deer. Oh, yeah, I still hunted. It didn't help me any by going in and trying to locate stuff. I would go in on something that I was already familiar with from the year before. And I skipped around. I mean, I covered quite a bit of ground, but I'd pick out an area to go into without any so you'd knowledge. So you'd know the wind, and you would go in with a wind at your face exactly. or a crosswind. Exactly. And then would you pick a certain kind of day? Did you need wet leaves so you could move quiet, or could you go when it was dry? I didn't... I'd go when I could. It didn't, it didn't matter. I didn't wait on a particular day. If it's dry, it just took you a little longer to, to yeah. still hunt in. But in all reality, I didn't move any faster. I don't move any faster in wet ground than I do in dry. If you're setting up in a tree stand and you hear a deer coming, if you walk like that deer, you can walk up on a deer. A deer will walk mm. and stop and walk and stop. And if you do the same thing, you can do the same thing to a deer. Mm. So you, you would just, you'd start hunting as soon as you left the road? and you just to. I really would. You'd just move just slow. Like how far would you travel in a given period of time? That's a hard question to answer because sometimes I'm, I may not be 100 yards from where I was at an hour ago. Okay. Or hardly, I mean 50 yards even. I guess you'd be encouraged by seeing, like seeing rubs or seeing... Seeing... Well, sign and squirrels will help you, birds will help you. You know, if there's something moving out here, you hear a squirrel barking down here and knowing it's not barking at you. You know, I've sat there many, many, many times and a squirrel be barking at a coon or something else thinking it was a deer. Sometimes it's a deer. I could spend a half a day and not go 300 yards. What would you do? Would you lean up against a tree? Would you, like, find landmarks and you'd say, I'm going to try to get to there? And then No, just... I didn't ever do that. Okay. No, as landmarks, I I mean, I know what you're saying, but I'd, I would head to the landmark, but I wouldn't, you know, if I'm going to go this direction over that holler, I'd take my time getting to it, and if I drop down and then coming over the next ridge or a saddle, that's when I'd spend a lot of time easing up and covering all the ground on the next area ahead of me. How, how do you usually see deer? Like, what are they doing, James? Are they moving? Are they bedded down? Anything from a twitch of an ear or a tail? Any kind of movement, just lock in on it, you know, and, and not move, you know. What about your shots? Are you having to take a lot of moving shots? Just of all those deer on your wall, what would you say would be the, the most common shot? Just he's standing out there broadside and you shoot him? Well, you can't really do that in steel hunting. You kind of have to take the shot when you get it. Walking, I mean, if you can catch one standing, of course you want a broadside shot. Uh, no. They probably wouldn't be 50% standing. They'd moving. Moving. Not not full bore. Not running, but no. moving. You Walking got to shoot. And, and, and when they're traveling, even, you know, if you got get behind a buck, I mean, between a doe and the buck trailing the doe, 
buck's coming through there with his head on the ground and he's already trailing one. You got to plan ahead and pull out and. So you'd be looking I've, for a gap. You'd 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 kind of try to predict where he was going to be and you'd be there. What kind of what was your go-to rifle? Started out with a thirty thirty Marlin for many 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 years, and later years I got a three oh eight with a scope on it. Okay. In all your stomping around out there, James, I know you would le- you you would you would just learn where you would see a buck. You would. Of all this terrain, where would you see bucks? Was there a trend? Most of them were close to two thirds of the way up the mountain, and a lot of these mountains have little, we call them saddles, little gaps. And most of the time, they'd be on the upper side of those gaps, hmm. looking down on the gaps or. I mean, they're, they're covering their back, too. You wouldn't stay on top of the mountain. You'd be oh, off no, this side. No, I'm not hunted a whole lot on top. Really? Just over the turn, either on the north or on the south. For many years, I wouldn't hunt on the south, strictly the north. Really? We went in camping one day, or a friend of mine was camping with me, and he liked the south side. We hunted the south side, and it's uh, the big bucks is on the south side, too. If you could give me one key for still hunting these mountains, what would it be? Patience is 99% of it, and, you know, of course, the wind in your face. James, I, I do you think that you have a, or a hunter has a sixth sense, like a, like a sensing of a deer being somewhere? I do. Yeah, I do. How does that feel to you? That's a hard one to describe, but, I mean, you feel like, you know, you feel like he's here. Where is he? You know, and maybe you, there's you, no you, real reason to. No, no. but you just you no, just, you just sense that he's here. Where is he? You don't move your head. You move your eyes. You don't move your body. You, you know that deer. You're right on top of him, and many times you're right, and most of the time he busts you. But I mean, you'll finally give up, and make a move, and the deer would be basically in plain sight. Hmm. Now that's. That's when your, your old heart goes to thumping when you get, and you know he's there. And many times, Clay, they are, you know. Yeah. It's just like you know they are. You feel that they are. They are. <laughs> you know? But that was the exciting part of hunting. It's not the kill. It's uh, it's outsmarting a no buck. There's one on one out there when you're still hunting. Yeah. Now, sitting in a tree, I love that bow hunting, um, or gun hunting. But the excitement that I got growing up was still hunting. Well, see, I think that you built your whole whitetail world going off where nobody else wants to go, doing it alone for the most part. You had a few close hunting buddies. You you took your wife sometimes with you. Right. But you learned how to be a master woodsman for these mountains. And that's, that is what I always, from the day I met you, James, was I valued your humility I, va- I valued your your skill and craft and the, the way you dedicated yourself to know these mountains and know these deer the way you do and you just learned how to be successful in a really difficult place Scott Brown and I grew up together and share an appreciation for hunting these mountain bucks in our region he has a good story that puts James's hunting into context. My dad grew up with a dad who believed the only way you, you could hunt a deer was to 
run dogs. You know, they were passionate dog hunters, and that was just the, you know, to them, the only way to hunt a deer. And so there was this thought that you didn't turn the dogs out till the frost melted off. So you'd get up mm. in the morning, make some coffee, you'd sit around, let the sun come up, get the frost melted off. Then you'd load all your dogs up. Everybody go get on where they felt a deer was going to come running by, Yeah, you know, and there was some art to that. And anyway, they sat around there. This would have been probably in 67, 68. They're sitting around deer camping and my grandpa says, well, we're going to go get in this gap. There was a certain gap there on a mountain where these deer liked to, if they headed south, they were going to go through this low gap in a mountain. And so they leave out. They walk out into this big low gap, real pretty. When they get up there, my grandpa says, come here, I want to show you something. He looked, my grandpa goes, look at that right there. And, he, and there's a tree stand, just basically a platform built on a, in a tree with some big old nail spikes. Tree spikes. Tree spikes. Or, or railroad tie spikes or yes, something. Yes, just, just, you know, hammered into this tree and this stand, you know, he said was probably 12 or 15 feet off the ground. You know, it was pretty high. For, Back then. For, well, I, dad had never even seen a tree stand. It was the first one he'd ever seen in his life. My grandpa looks at that and he says, do you believe that somebody would do something like that? That's it. <laughs> No, I, I can't believe. So you just—it was said just it. unheard of during that time for well, people to hunt out of tree stands. Yeah, and it was the first time my dad ever realized that you could actually still hunt a deer. You know, he was raised that that wasn't an option. Right. It was kind of eye-opening to him that you could, you know, you just sit in that tree until a deer walked by. You yeah. Know, and it sounded like an insurmountable task, you know, to sit yeah. in that stand just waiting on a deer to happen by. So anyway, my grandpa just kept on about it. He goes, "I just can't believe anybody'd sit in something like that. It's just." stupid to sit in a stand when you could you know turn the dogs loose on something you know what yeah, i mean just a yeah. totally different frame of mind and dad dad kind of said something well whose is it my grandpa said well it's that lawrence boy <laughs> and dad said well who's that and so anyway he got a my grandpa kind of elaborated uh, about james lawrence back in the late 60s and said nobody in this part of the world at least you know in southwest yeah. arkansas was even doing anything like that you know so he's way ahead of his time but yeah james was doing he was hunting low saddles and mountains and the stuff that i grew up 30 years later 30 years later and understood that's what you had to do you know that's what you did to hunt deer well that wasn't it wasn't that way you know people people didn't really start understanding there was kind of this revive well not a revival but a new understanding of how to deer hunt came in the seven or, or mass distribution of knowledge about deer hunting in the 70s 80s and then in the 90s with outdoor television and just a increase of outdoor media but a lot of these guys were kind of pioneers for how to pattern deer and do all this you like to hunt you like to hunt off horseback too though i like to hunt horseback and i like to get as far away from roads and chicken houses dogs you know and get as far back as i can so you would lead the horse in with a saddle panniered which is basically you'd have a riding saddle and then you'd put basically, yeah. a panniered over it and carry all your stuff in. Right, I mean, right. when you were camping. We started out from army duffel bags, tying them, balancing them on a saddle until, you know, yeah. worked our way up to that. And then that was wonderful, you know, go from backpacking in. To having that horse carry everything. It, yeah. And then when you'd get to camp and unload it, then you could ride the horse. Right, right. Well, see, you, you taught me how to do that. That's the way, that's my favorite that, way to hunt today oh, that i miss that so much there were the, one time you told me you stayed nine days back in there by yourself that's that's the longest i've ever stayed um and i just want to say that like out west 
like there's this big, vast country and, you know, people go back in on these long hunts. Around here, there was very few people that were getting back in that deep mm. and staying that long. I no. mean, you didn't know anybody around here doing that, did no, you? No, no. Nobody did. No. So I just, I kind of put that into context. You know, it's like for for around here, that was like extreme whitetail hunting yeah. and, and would be to this day. Yeah. I miss it, you know. Well, you know, James, you have massively inspired me. And I mean, since we've been good friends for a long time now. Yeah. I mean, I, I model a whole lot of what I do after you, you know, and um, I that's my you. favorite way to hunt. Uh, and I'm not very good at it. I'm not as good at it as you are. <laughs> yeah, you're good. Yeah, you're oh, good. man. Mike Schultz is one of the leaders in our church, and he's also a master woodworker. He is also someone whose life has significantly impacted mine on many levels. I want to discuss with him why and how relationships affect us. Mike Schultz, I'm trying to understand why relationships are so unique and why some relationships impact us in certain ways. And it's interesting that you're the one sitting here, Mike, because as you know, you're you're a man that I would consider someone who's been deeply influential in my life in many ways. I also have seen you be real intentional with the mentors and relationships in your life. Why do some relationships impact us? Well, that's a, um, a good question. I, I think relationships are how we gain an understanding of who we are. Relationships can fulfill things inside of us that we're looking for. Ultimately, I think humans are designed to be relational. That's the starting point. We need each other. I found that in my own life. Some relationships I knew were divine. Um, I knew it very early on inside of the relationship that there was a connection that would be deep and that would be really heart-joining and heartfelt and that they would be long-term. And to me, that those are the ones that I know are divine. Those are the ones that I know that are, are orchestrated outside of myself. They're relationships that, well, the Bible talks about iron sharpening iron, where each person is growing, each person is gaining understanding, each person is developing as a human being. Mike, I've heard you talk about how the different relationships that you've had in your life have helped form personal identity for you. Can you expound on that? Yeah, I think the best way I can talk about that is just through uh, one example that comes to mind, a relationship with people that I've had on learning new skills and watching someone who had a very high skill level in, in a particular area. And, and the area that I'm going to talk about is a friend of mine that was a very, very fine woodworker, cabinet maker. I came to him and asked him if he would begin to mentor me or teach me in that area. He was very generous. And I watched him cut hand-cut dovetails for, for drawers. And I was impressed by the skill of his hands. And mm. when I first saw it, I thought, this is impossible to do. Seeing his hands and watching him and with his encouragement, it took me to a whole nother level. And I discovered something about myself that uh, I could do things beyond what I thought were possible. And you know what? He didn't just teach you a skill. Because I think somebody could just say, well, he just taught you how to do something. You could have watched it on YouTube. 
I don't think so. Like he he did teach you a skill, but he expanded you. Exactly. So there was like a technology that came into you about this high level of skill that you didn't know was possible and to stretch yourself and to grow. That wouldn't have came from a YouTube video. That's exactly right, Clay. And it was through relationship too. It was through his encouragement. Right. that That was the word that I keyed in on. Mike, I've seen you prioritize relationships inside of your life. Why do you do that? It's very easy to have a lot of friends. Uh, For somebody like you, it is, Mike, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think the important thing inside of relationship is that relationships can grow us or they can stunt us Mm -hmm. or they can slow us down in our our development as as a person. And it's important to know which relationships are the ones that are are nourishing us. Mm. Personally, I want relationships. The deep ones are important to me. They're those ones where I become a better human being. Yeah, the uniqueness of who we are as an individual is deeply formed by the relationships that we form that nourish us. And there are aspects of who we are that actually come from different relationships that we have. Uh, We need a multitude of people around us for us to discover really the multifaceted nature of really who we are. I I think about my life. I very clearly see that my life is a a unique combination of all the people that I've been close to and I have led in. And I I believe that's part of the divine nature of, of life. Uh, is that that understanding that I need others, that I cannot be an island unto myself. James built much of his life around deer hunting. He loved the fall and wild places so much he decided he'd work hard for 10 months of the year and hunt the other two. Well, maybe it was nine and three. The wild thing is, is that for somebody so passionate, He never shared with many people about his success. Maybe he even kept it hidden just a little bit, or at least by modern standards hidden. People in the community knew about James's hunting, but he wasn't one to brag on his accomplishments. I think it probably goes back to the initial response he got from the first deer he ever killed. Sharing things that are valuable to us make us vulnerable. James would learn to set his own standards, and he'd celebrate his accomplishments with a few close friends. He was never bitter, but it made him humble about his deer hunting. And trust me, he's the guy you want around if you have a successful hunt. He's all about celebrating the success of others. I don't know that I've ever had a hunting buddy that convinced me with more certainty that they'd rather me have success than them. So your hunting really shaped shaped your life in a lot of ways. I mean, you built your life kind of around deer hunting. That may be sad, but true. You said something to me one time. You said, I'd lose a crop for a good deer hunt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've used that since then. Well. Because you know what? I've built my life sort of in the same way. We, we like you have grown up out here in the mountains your whole life. To you, this is just normal life. But it's a pretty incredible privilege to be a backwoodsman in 2020. I can't imagine anything else, really. I mean, mm-hmm. this is my life. I mean, it, uh, I, I was lucky enough, this this property I'm on, um, I've actually come up with uh, a 60 acres of the old homestead place where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't dream of the situation growing up. I never thought about losing my family, my granddad and my uncles and 
It's uh, special. It's pretty pretty unique for this day and age. I'm blessed to be here, you know, to be yeah. able to do that. What I've always noted about James, even from our first meeting, was his humility in the midst of notable accomplishments. He's never left his humble roots. James became a master woodsman and whitetail hunter and rarely got more than 10 miles from where he was born and raised. He's lived an incredible life of adventure and backcountry hunting that I'll say would rival any hunter that I've ever met. He didn't have to travel to exotic hunting destinations to experience the incredible bounty, both internal and external, that wild places offer. James's dedication to woodsman craft and the specific style of hunting is inspiring and challenging to me personally. His humility is a standard to which I evaluate my own life. His story also causes me to reflect on the early encounters, both positive and negative, that I had in hunting that steer me to this day. And this makes me want to be a positive voice in the story of the young hunters in my life. Relationships build the framework of our lives and affect its trajectory. James is one on a short list of people that have altered the shape of my life in a significant way. And sometimes it's hard for me to even understand why. The unique shape that is our personal identity is a combination of the influential relationships in our life. I just can't get away from this idea. Yeah, we're hunters that love wild places, wild meat, and adventure. But I believe the thing that we're after that's of extreme value is the human relationships that we build throughout our life. And what we're passionate about connects us to people. It's like a bridge that connects us. So for us, hunting is that connector. So then hunting becomes something really special. The cool thing is, is that we get to choose who we're impacted by. So choose wisely. No matter how technologically advanced hunting gets, I hope we never lose what James has shown me is still very much alive in North American hunting. A lifestyle dedicated to craft, a pursuit of true woodsmanship for the region, and the nurturing of an ageless and adventurous spirit that does not lose its zeal. Hey, long live the beast, long live the hunt, and long live our timeless friendships. Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now, become a snack subscriber, and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com and use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we've already done right. Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you actually want to eat breakfast. In the last year, I've been more diligent about going to the gym 
on a regimented schedule, and it's made a lot of difference in my life. Therapy helps you find your strengths so that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Grease today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Grease. 